Hello and welcome to episode 236 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story from East London is a difficult tale about chronic illness and the potential implications for those suffering and their friends and families. This Thursday on UK True Crime Live, I'm genuinely excited that me and Chantal are joined by Professor David Wilson. If you're in the UK and have watched any true crime on TV over the last five years, you'll recognise him. David will be talking about his books and answering any questions that you have for him, so please search Adam Lloyd on Crowdcast to register or check the show notes here on look on any of my social media. You don't want to miss this one. As always, a huge thank you to all of my supporters at Patreon, especially the new members of this exclusive club. That is Amy Blythe, Mary Rose and April Braid. Thank you so much for your support, which is so much appreciated. As well as bonus episodes and other exclusive content, all Patreon supporters can enter the competition to win a fantastic Central London hotel room in the CrimeCon Hotel for the Saturday night of CrimeCon in September. Join us now at patreon.com slash the UK True Crime. Let's set some context for today's story and play our infamous month and year game. Jess Glynn with Don't Be So Hard On Yourself topped the UK music charts. In the US, it was Omi with Cheerleader. And in the Australian album charts, immortalised by Disturbed. Isn't that just two random words? Okay, never mind. Was top of the tree. In the news this month, Queen Elizabeth II became Great Britain's longest reigning monarch at 63 years and 7 months, beating the previous record set by her great-great-grandma, Queen Victoria. Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the UK Labour Party. And in UK true crime news, members of a Norwich sexual abuse ring were jailed for utterly depraved sex abuse of children over a period of 10 years. Ringleader Marie Black received the longest sentence of life imprisonment with a minimum term of 24 years. Did you get the month and year? It was September 2015. Today's story is from Dagenham, East London, which is around 11 miles to the east of Charing Cross. England international footballer and World Cup winning manager Alf Ramsey was born in Dagenham in 1920, as was the Australian singer in the 80s with all that hair. John Farnham. Remember him? Finally, musician and comedian Dudley Moore was born and grew up here. Do you remember in 2004 there were a spate of apparent suicide packs in Japan? What made these unusual and gained much press attention was that the participants were all strangers who'd arranged their suicide over the internet. Despite the sensational headlines this caused, Stranger suicide packs are extremely rare, and traditionally suicide packs are made between people with a close relationship to each other. According to the British Medical Journal, a suicide pact is an agreement between two or more people to commit suicide together at a given place and time. In England and Wales, for epidemiological purposes, people who have committed suicide within three days of each other in the same registration sub-district are considered to be potential victims of a suicide pact. A related phenomenon is homicide-suicide, in which a person commits a murder, 
and then ends his or her own life. But what happens when one person survives a suicide pact, having assisted in taking the life of the other? In 2015, 67-year-old Brian Derbyshire lived in Wycombe Green in Dagenham with his 36-year-old daughter Claire. Brian worked as a stock controller at the famous Dagenham Ford Motor Factory until his retirement, and although he had been diagnosed as having multiple sclerosis in 1995 when he was just 47, he continued to work for as long as he could. If you know someone with MS, you will know just what a cruel illness it is. It's a disease of the central nervous system affecting about 100,000 people at any time in the UK, and it's a very unpredictable illness in its level of severity. For Brian Derbyshire, it would slowly get worse and eventually leave him registered disabled. After the death of his wife, Lynn, in 2008, Brian's health deteriorated further and his daughter Claire eventually became her dad's primary carer, moving in with him permanently once he became confined to his bed. Living that life was tough for both of them. The father-daughter relationship was often strained, and the pair led an extremely reclusive existence. Their only contact with the outside world were the nurses who regularly came to look after Brian. Claire one time confided to a friend, the manager of a jewellery shop where she worked as a volunteer, that the stress of looking after her dad was taking its toll on her mental health, and she felt trapped by the situation she was in. Like so many other people, she felt her duty to look after him, he was her family. But at the same time, she felt that this prevented her moving forward with her own life. On the morning of September the 3rd, 2015, Claire called the district nurse with responsibility for her dad and left a message asking her to please visit her father at home ASAP. She then took a train to Dover in the neighbouring county of Kent, which was about an hour and a half away. Little is known of Claire's movements upon arriving at Dover, but later that evening she was seen on the famous White Cliffs soaking wet from the heavy downpour of rain that day, looking dishevelled and in a state of distress. Claire approached a National Trust warden patrolling the cliffs, pleading for help as she wanted to jump over the edge but had lost her nerve. She said, I want to break my body, but I'm too scared to go through with it. Although not as notorious a suicide spot as Beachy Head in East Sussex further down the coast, This area is patrolled by wardens trained to look out for signs of people in distress near the cliff edge, experiencing what the French call l'appel de vide, the call of the void. I reckon I could pass for a local in Paris, don't you? The warden working this particular night was experienced and compassionate and knew exactly what to do. Claire was coaxed away from the edge to safety and reassured that she would receive the help she desperately needed. The local mental health support services were called for assistance, and Claire was taken to nearby Canterbury, where she was assessed by professionals. Once they established that Claire was no longer a danger to herself or others, she was temporarily housed in a hostel where she would stay for the next few days. It was not until five days later, on September the 8th, that she first mentioned a suicide pact. Claire told support workers in the early hours of the morning of the 3rd of September 
she had a very emotional conversation with her dad. During that conversation, Brian had said he could not go on living, and Claire, in turn, said she could not live without her dad. Agreeing that they both wanted to die, together they took an overdose of paracetamol, lay down side by side, and waited to slip away and for death to welcome them. But when Claire saw that the tablets had failed to have the desired effect on her dad, she placed a plastic head over her dad's head and kept it tightly in place as their life slowly ebbed out of him and he soon lay dead in her arms. While she had every intention of keeping her side of the bargain, remaining in the house where Brian's body was too claustrophobic and traumatic for Claire, she felt she had to get away and put some distance between what she had done and what she was about to do. But the reality of standing on that cliff edge in Dover, things felt very difficult, very real and very bleak. And slowly, Claire came to the realisation that she just could not go through with it. Meanwhile, back in Dagenham, neighbours of Brian Derbyshire were becoming concerned. They were well aware of his poor health, but noticed that the bins had not been put out, which was unusual. This was normally done weekly, without fail by Brian's daughter. And they noticed that there had been no sign of his daughter for a few days, and that the lights had not been turned on at night. There were no signs of life, effectively. On the 10th of September, the police were called to perform a welfare check at the house, and there they found the decomposing body of Brian Derbyshire, laid out on his bed, wearing his best suit, and surrounded by soft toys. There were various notes written by Claire found in the bedroom, one of which read, Dad couldn't go on any more, being bedbound. He asked me to help him end it. Now I have to end it too, as my action is claimed as a crime. If it was an animal, then you would stop its suffering. But when it comes to a member of your own species, you want to prolong the suffering as long as possible. We have the cheek to call ourselves civilised. Don't waste your time looking for me. My phone call to the district nurse was my last action. In another note, she'd written movingly about her dad, saying that he was good, selfless and wonderful man, adding, he did not deserve to get ill. He was such a great dad. Police tracked Claire Derbyshire to the hostel in Canterbury, where she was still staying, and she was promptly arrested on suspicion of murder. Once at the police station, Claire produced a pre-written statement from her pocket, which she told officers she had prepared, as she was going to turn herself into the police station the following morning, so she had her confession ready. She then read her statement out loud, in which she admitted to killing her dad, but denied murder, as she said she was merely carrying out his express wishes. Despite this, Claire was charged with murder just after midnight on the 15th of September 2015. As you will know from similar cases, the court faced a difficult decision. Cases involving alleged suicide pacts raise a whole host of issues. Was this a simple case of murder with a suicide pact a convenient defence? Did Brian Derbyshire ask his daughter to perform assisted suicide when he was unable to take his own life and she made a pretense of joining him? Or was she telling the truth that they made a pact together but she was unable to see it through after the first attempt failed. A post-mortem examination found Brian Derbyshire's injuries were consistent with plastic bag asphyxia, 
which Claire had admitted to. However, the post-mortem also showed no evidence of an overdose of painkillers prior to asphyxiation. Did this mean that Claire was lying? Or at the very least, her evidence could be seen as misleading? Prosecutor Jonathan Rees, QC, disputed Claire's account of the events leading up to the night of the 3rd of September. He told the jury, In essence, she asserts that she and her dad had come to this agreement because his life had been intolerable due to multiple sclerosis and she would have had nothing to live for once her father had gone. Now, if one person intentionally kills another in pursuance of a suicide pact, then that person is guilty of manslaughter rather than the more serious offence of murder. However, the prosecution do not accept that the defendant killed her dad in pursuance of such an agreement, which has a precise legal definition, and so that is to be the central issue you will need to focus on in this case. And there was no evidence that Brian Derbyshire had ever experienced suicidal thoughts before. His medical records referred to episodes of bad temper and aggression, but there were no indications of suicidal thoughts or complaints about even being in pain when he was visited by nursing staff. In fact, QC Reese said inquiries had been made with all the nurses who visited Brian and none raised any concerns for his welfare. On the contrary, a few had said that Brian and his daughter seemed happy, and one nurse said they appeared close and that his daughter was a lovely lady. The jury was sent out to make their decision, and they took just 11 hours and 32 minutes to unanimously find Claire Derbyshire guilty of the murder of her father, Brian Derbyshire, and she was sentenced to life with the minimum term set at the lowest in legal history, just four years. The judge said that Claire had failed to establish how complicit her father was in the so-called pact and it wasn't clear just how far Claire's suicide was agreed to by both parties. He concluded, You gave evidence in the case, and I accept your evidence that your father did raise the question of ending his own life, and he wanted to do that, and he wanted your help to do so. But he told her that she'd unlawfully killed her father behind closed doors, and no defence to murder applied. There didn't appear to be any evidence that Brian Derbyshire talked about ending his life other than his daughter saying so. The judge did say that he accepted it was an act of mercy. Speaking after the verdict, their lead detective said, It's always difficult for those involved when a person loses their life, whatever the circumstances, and this case raises a number of sensitive issues. The reclusive lifestyle that Brian and Claire Derbyshire had lived for a number of years means it's difficult to fully understand their precise situation. However, after considering all of the evidence in this case, the jury returned a unanimous verdict of murder, which has been welcomed by the remaining family of Brian Derbyshire. Three years and eight months into her sentence, Claire was interviewed by soap star turned investigative journalist Ross Kemp. (laughs) I know, I know, apologies to Paul Foote and the many other greats when I use the words Ross Kemp and investigative journalist in the same line. Don't blame me, blame Wikipedia. Anyway, it was on the documentary series Welcome to HMP Belmarsh that Claire Derbyshire explained exactly what had happened that night. She said, He had MS, 
was bedbound and wanted to commit suicide, but he couldn't do it on his own. I helped him. When he decided he wanted to be suffocated, he said that would be easiest because at least then he could have a hand in it. He could hold the bag. And I lay behind him and held the back of the bag. His breathing got quicker and quicker and then slower. And then I heard his last breath and I knew he was gone. At this point, you might well be thinking, isn't HMP Bell Marsh a notorious prison for adult males? Well, yes, it is. Claire Derbyshire was born Christopher Derbyshire in 1979, but changed her name via Depole in 2008 and had been living as a woman since then. However, as she was a pre-operative transgender, she had no legal rights to serve her time in a woman's prison. As the only transgender inmate in Belmarsh at the time, Claire could only leave her cell once fellow prisoners were locked in their rooms for her own safety. She explained to Kemp that the idea of serving her time in an all-male prison was daunting and she was frequently abused verbally. She of course always feared being physically assaulted, saying, There was always that in the back of my mind what could happen. The officers can't always be by your side. I've got select friends, people who've been good to me and have my back. They look out for me. Claire eventually got through the prison sentence and on her release from prison in September 2019, she struggled to find somewhere suitable to live. She found that the female hostels available felt that she was too masculine and would intimidate the other residents, yet the male hostels rejected her for being too female and therefore put her at risk from the other residents. This meant that Claire ended up on the streets of Hounslow, West London. She was eventually tracked down by the local paper and said, Unfortunately, the system has really let me down. As you can imagine, being homeless makes you extremely vulnerable, more so when you're a transgender. Despite her tough time since being released from prison, Claire insisted that she was enjoying her freedom. She said, Life after prison is great. The freedom is wonderful. Even things such as opening doors by yourself without an officer having to do it for you. I've gone from one extreme to the other living in a 7 times 4 cell to living in the great outdoors. People said it would be hard to adapt back to life outside, but it wasn't. If you can adapt to being in Belmarsh for the first time, you can adapt to being out again. I just wish I had a place to live. I try to view my life as chapters in a book. Currently I'm homeless, and hopefully in the next chapter I will have a home. At that time, Claire was in the process of setting up a GoFundMe page and said that she would use money raised to travel to different boroughs so I could try and get some safe housing and build up a life for myself. It would mean so much to get any help as I'm only in this situation because I chose to help my father when he needed help to end his suffering. I've spent four years being punished for doing the morally right thing and now it seems I'm still being punished. All I want is to be able to find somewhere safe to live and start the rest of my life. I want to have a career in IT, so I know where I want my life to go. But unfortunately, the system has really let me down. The last update I could find about Claire was in December 2020, when she'd managed to get herself a flat and was looking forward to her first Christmas in that flat. So what do you make of what you've heard today? 
It's a difficult story, as there are so many disparate elements to it. The claustrophobic existence of the father and daughter. The failed suicide pact defence for murder, resulting in such a low sentence. And of course, the difficult and sensitive issue of housing pre-op transgender prisoners. Had Claire gone through surgery prior to sentencing and received a gender reassignment certificate, she would have served her time in a women's prison. But would she have served a longer sentence? Did the short sentence reflect the fact that the additional fears of what Claire would face in Belmarsh could contribute significantly more to her level of punishment? Assisted suicide, if indeed it was assisted suicide, is an emotive topic, and Claire clearly feels that she was carrying out her dad's final wishes, regardless of whether she'd ever planned to fulfil her side of the pact. But her opinion that the system had let her down is just one side of the argument, and one that was disputed by Brian Derbyshire's remaining family and friends, who never had the chance to say goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this episode or any other aspects of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. And to support the show and access bonus episodes and other exclusive content for as little as £1 a month and keep me recording this podcast every week, please join us at patreon.com slash UK True Crime. A reminder to go to Crowdcast and search Adam Lloyd so you can catch the UK True Crime Live with Professor David Wilson on Thursday. But that is all from me for another week. Another huge thank you to Hayes from the podcast She Wrote podcast for the research and writing of this story. And until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. Despite all the others, please stay classy. Cheerio.